Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Having interviewed a good number of Black expat professionals, there's often a common theme of travel in their coming-of-age story. Now, this isn't the case for everyone, but it's unsurprising when talking to Black expats in particular. Seeing the world introduced through a new perspective for many of them influenced the professional decisions they would make later in life. And I've always been a firm believer that if you expose children and young adults to the world outside of their time zones, it can be a positive, life-changing experience. In that same vein, that's what happened to both LeVar Thomas and Ruby Maddox, the co-founders of Leaders of the Free World. LeVar would have his first solo experience as a teen to Spain and eventually would go on to be a Peace Corps volunteer in Rwanda. Ruby was a little bit different and didn't go abroad until she was an adult when a social enterprise initiative took her to Ghana. But for both of them, these experiences would be absolutely transformative and motivated them to launch their organization. As you'll hear in this episode, they didn't know each other well prior to becoming co-founders and didn't even meet in person until they met in an airport in Ghana with their first cohort of students. But it was this shared parallel mission and a chance introduction that would make this whole thing work. You'll hear how their personal stories of understanding culture and identity led them to focusing their organization on providing international experiential learning experiences for college-aged Black men. In 2016, when Ruby first appeared on the Black Expat site, she wrote, at its core, Leaders of the Free World is about psychological emancipation. With guidance, mentoring, and support, they definitely challenge young Black men to see themselves beyond their social and geographical boundaries and limitations. This was true then, and it is still now. Welcome to the chatter. All right, so we're back with another edition of the Global Chatter, and you know, I'm always excited for the guests that come on this show because I think I talk to some of the coolest people on the planet. And for me, this is this is almost full circle because back in, I believe, 2016 or so, we featured this organization, which, which these two represent. And, and so I am excited to have both Ruby and LeVar on here today to talk about the work that they're doing in international education, especially as it relates to young Black men. 
again, because that is that is a group that I don't think we talk a lot about or enough about when it comes to international education and international experiences. And so Ruby LaVar, how are you guys doing today? Doing great. Thank you for having us. Good, yeah, this good. is, you know, yeah, thank you. Ruby's the one I know. And, and we were fortunate <laughs> to do a story on 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 what y'all are doing back in the day. And so it feels like a lifetime ago, but it's been like five years. <laughs> yeah, about that. Um, that yeah. was our launch year. So I think you were wow. talking to us right before we went to Ghana that year. Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and I think, and I don't know how I found you guys, but I was like, Ooh, they're going to Ghana. I always get excited when people go to Africa and I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, I want to do a feature. And, uh, it, you know, since I started doing this podcast, I have been checking in with folks from the early years and it seems like I found a lot of people just as they were launching. So I'm so pumped to talk about where both of you guys started and saw the dream and, and where you've taken the organization now to today. So I'm going to start actually with LeVar. So, um, um, I asked this question of okay. everyone, but just give us a little taste of like how you grew up. Did you grow up internationally? Did you grow up traveling? Like what is your international story? Yes, my international story. So born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, um, <laughs> both my parents from Guyana, South America. So I kind of had the best of both worlds, like had, you know, the black experience growing up in Brownsville and Brooklyn. But then when I come home, I have the Caribbean experience. So <laughs> my parents are cooking Caribbean foods and still using Caribbean colloquialisms and still having that cultural experience, um, even though I grew up in a predominantly black community. So for me growing up, it was navigating both worlds. And the first time I went abroad... <laughs> My family said I was two years old. I went, they took me to Guyana and I got Yo, super sick. Let me pause you. <laughs> so my family's sick. from Cameroon. First time I went to Cameroon, I was about two or three. And I apparently got okay. really sick too. Because all my cousin could talk about is how I pooped in my diaper <laughs> from whatever I ate. <laughs> so I feel you on that. I feel you on that. <laughs> yeah, my mom said I got super sick and they had to come oh. back to America. And that was like the last time I've been back. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but um, but really, uh, the first international experience I had was at sixteen. Um, was in high school, Abraham Lincoln High School, and they had a study, like a student exchange program, where students were able to go to Spain, mm. um, Italy, France. Um, so when I heard about this program, I'm like, this sounds pretty dope. Let me tell my family about it and see what they think. And my dad was like, Yeah, sure. Like, take take advantage of it. Um. Now, caveat, I'm the youngest of three. So my sister and brother are 10 and 11 years older than me. So things that I got away with probably they couldn't (laughs) couldn't get away with. So my my dad said, yeah, go ahead. My parents were really supportive. And that was really like the first international experience going to Spain. And it was truly eye opening um, leaving Brooklyn, being abroad, being in a Spanish speaking Mm -hmm. household where no one spoke English. And I'm at the dinner table hearing Spanish that <laughs> apparently my public school Spanish can prepare me for. <laughs> and I'm just like, true culture shock. But looking back now, I'm like, wow, that experience truly laid kind of the groundwork for me to, to travel the world and really have an interest in having international experiences. So that was really kind of mm. the starting point for me for travel and ex- 
expanding my worldview and how I see myself, you know, how I see the world, mm-hmm. realizing how small the world is, even though it's it's big at the same time. So, yeah, that was really okay. kind of the launch. And so, Ruby, what, what's your story? What's your international, your first taste of international life? Did you grow up with tra- traveling? I did not. Um, absolutely. It was just not a part of my family life. It was not a part of um, where I grew up in my my town. And so it was just like in my family, there was a story of that one aunt who went to Africa one time. And you know, she lost her passport. And so she could never go. And I'm like, yeah, it was really encouraging. Um, so when I, um, I, before Leaders of the Free World, I had started this urban ag program. So like teaching kids how to grow food in the city, got really involved in that. And um, I saw an opportunity to go to Ghana and just kind of like work with their urban ag um, program there. Like they had... The Ministry of Food and Agriculture was working with local urban farmers there. And yeah. I'm like, perfect. I mean, honestly, any reason would have been great. But yeah. I was just like, great, this feels relevant. And it's like <laughs> volunteering with the farmers and like learning about what they did and how they did it. Um, and then that thing happens, you know, that I wasn't expecting, but that happens when you go abroad um, for the first time. And it's just like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> So all of a sudden, you know, the whole script is flipped in terms of how you see yourself, how you Mm -hmm. see the world, just like what you see as possibilities Mm -hmm. and just that whole liberated mindset about like, oh, they've been lying to us, you know, (laughs) growing up (laughs) here in in the U.S. And so it was um, and it was in Ghana. It was in 2010. So 10 years ago. And um, it was from that experience was just like got the bug. And it's just like, I want to keep going. I want to keep going. But also just, you know, I know we'll get into it later. It was just like. You know, if this did this for me, imagine mm-hmm. what it could do for other people who are not getting that opportunity. So so I'm really fascinated even mm-hmm. between your two stories, because, Lamar, you obviously you you obviously traveled as a small child, but then as a teenager in high school. But Ruby, essentially, you were an adult, a full fledged adult when you went. A full fledged <laughs> adult. And my mama still didn't want me to go. <laughs> and, and, and so your first experience was going to Africa. Mm-hmm. Is that which is which yeah. actually I think is a really interesting first international experience. And your first experience was going to Europe. Let's keep in control for the fact that you saw family. Right. What was it? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I know, LeVar, you talked about Spain and, and hearing Spanish for the first time at the table. But I'm even just curious from both of you. What was that experience just kind of first stepping out of being in the U.S., being in, in your communities and going to these new places? Because both of you, I think, actually, comparatively you grew up in new york and you, do you grew up in boston is that right uh, springfield, no, no. springfield, mass. springfield okay spring hill mass okay birthplace but, of basketball i was gonna <laughs> i was just gonna say <laughs> but comparatively you guys did kind of grow up in urban areas and so you did have mm-hmm. exposure to folks but what was it when you actually stepped out of the u.s as as folks and went into other countries what was that experience like for you you know how that lion's, lion's song <laughs> comes terrifying. up first Um, Sorry, go ahead, LeVar. Now I'm saying it was terrifying. (laughs) Um, Because it was, at 16, that was the first time I traveled by my, like, without family um, to to anywhere out the country. So I was with, you know, colleagues from my, my classmates from my my high school. And even though we went there together, we were staying at separate homes. So I was meeting my host family for the first time. Um, I wasn't sure how good their English was. I'm like, my Spanish is not that great. And it's all these thoughts happening. And I'm like, I was I was nervous, but I'm like, you know what? Let me embrace 
this experience, mm-hmm. me be open to it at least. And it was uncomfortable. I mean, the first <laughs> two nights where I, I know I didn't, I didn't have the cell <laughs> yeah. phone to call home and say, "Hey, mine is no Facebook." Well, maybe there was yeah. Facebook back then, but like, yeah. I didn't have it. Um, and really, just kind of sitting mm. in that discomfort. And when they say, you know, kind of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, kind of thing, like. I had to embrace and lead into that. And that was really the first experience of me being outside the United States. It was like, this is really uncomfortable. Mm. Um, This is a culture shock. This is different. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't understand the language. I don't understand the cultural nuances. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to navigate this. But um, just sitting in that is is what I had to do for that first experience. Um, I think for me, it was was a roller coaster at first, like this complete... um, and I just wonder, just like, because, you know, you're on the continent, you're in Africa. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the first day, it's like, oh, my God, I'm in Africa. <laughs> you wake up in the morning, it's like, I woke up in <laughs> You know? <laughs> um, yeah, everything was just, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, there was this moment, because I was also in the area with, like, um, my host mom. Yeah, I spoke really, you know, really great English, but it was just like when everybody, you know, I was home sometimes and everyone's coming around and they're laughing and they're talking, but you can't understand anything going. It's just like you you see the vibe and everything and everyone's laughing and, and it's like, I want to join in. And then, of course, you know, people translate to you and I'm like, oh, OK. And after the fact, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, but it was I think there was a, a moment at first of like extreme just like isolation at first, which was weird because I'm like. Okay, um, there's no one here, you know, that I could relate to or talk mm-hmm. to. No one I can't even like talk. So that at first that happened. I'm like, what do I do? And how did I? Why did I come out here? Like I didn't have to do this. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then after that first week, it was just like, yeah. I can't believe I'm only here for like four more weeks. I can't, you know, mm-hmm. even the four weeks was too short. Three, you know, a, a month would have been too short. So it's just like this complete reversal of just like this is awesome and. Um, I remember I tell people the day that I fell in love with Ghana um, and was just like, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to go back home. was just like, <laughs> I had to be in a, 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 I went to a stakeholder meeting for um, the urban farmers. And so mm-hmm. it's like the farmers there, the landowners. I'm not sure if I told you this story back in 2016. Uh, but, um, you know, it was a stakeholder meeting of all these people, um, you know, the ministry having to do with urban farming. And it was one of those meetings, like I had been to those meetings back home and, you know, in, in Springfield. Yeah. But um, there's always that sense of like, you know, if you're the minority in the room then you you feel all the assumptions that come with it, you feel people asking you like qualifying questions of what's your role here? What's your value? And I remember being in that room and they're all having discussions. I'm not even an official member of that group, but I'm there and they're just like, oh, well, you're here. You must have something to contribute. And there was something to that. immediate understanding of worthiness that wasn't necessarily based on like, well, you're a minority, so you must have a minor role here. You know, it's yeah. just like all the yeah. stuff that comes with just being here and the, um, the microaggressions, the white privilege, all that sort of stuff. And then I'm there in that environment in that meeting. And it's just like, oh, is this what it's like to just be, to just be a person, to just, mm. you know, exist? And I'm like, why the heck would I ever go back to the U.S., <laughs> you know, to experience anything other than this feeling right here? And obviously I had to go back. But it was just like, but it was, that was that first time where I was like, oh, there is an other, you know, another yeah. side to sort of like this mm. identity that we've had to sort of like assume our whole lives and never know that there was anything different than that. Um, so that was huge for me uh, that year. So that's super powerful. And I, I want to hold on to that because 
LaVar, I know you did Peace Corps in Rwanda. And mm-hmm. so I kind of want to juxtapose yes. that with, I don't know, was Rwanda your first trip to Africa or had you been there before? Okay. First and trip. That, that's kind of a big way yeah. to do it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, most people just go for like 10 days and, come and they, they go to like Nairobi or like <laughs> Dar es Salaam or like Accra. Johannesburg. Right, exactly. Cape Town. But I guess if you go do it, you might as well be <laughs> doing it. Do a real do bit. A bit. I remember, I, right yeah. In. You know what? And I know you know this. You know Byron Williams, right? Who was at Peace Corps. African-American male. He, he was a recruiter mm-hmm. for a long time. I think you know him. Um, we talked about this was years ago he was in Lesotho and I was like same thing if you're going to go to the continent you might as well just do it like as as big and as ridiculous as you can especially as a black person but I'm curious your experiences going to the continent the first time, particularly in that role, and based on some of the stuff Ruby said, was that your was that your impression, or did you have a completely different experience, or a mix of this and something else? Yeah, it was it was definitely that like romanticized idea of going to Africa. Um, I'm like, wow, I'm actually gonna be going and living there for two years. One. And then you contrast that with like everyone's fears of Hotel mm-hmm. Rwanda, right? So people are like, oh my gosh, like you're going to Rwanda? Like, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm going to be doing <laughs> positive work out there. Like, it's going to be great. Um, but I think just the fears and because the media portrays Africa mm-hmm. in such a dark way, it's like you're forced to kind of kind of be ignorant in that sense, like not knowing and having that as the only narrative being told until you go there and see for yourself and you realize that, wow, folks out there living a lot better than we Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I've been in some of the best hotels right. over there. Um, but um, it was definitely, I think, to Ruby's point, like, like wow, I'm here and I, I can't believe I'm here mm. given my community and given like where, like where I came from, like having the opportunity to to kind of walk away from a job and to just mm-hmm. to, to travel and to have this international experience. Um, but then that kind of romanticism fades mm-hmm. really quickly when you live yeah. there um, yeah. because it's, you're not, you're not visiting and like you visit, you kind of indulge in the cool things of a country and then you leave, you get to see the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent when you live in there. And I, so we started out in Kigali mm-hmm. um, for the first two nights and then we went to our regional town in the eastern province of Rwanda, where it was slightly more rural, but still urban. Yeah. We had host families. Um, and it was great. Like, you know, it was it was a nice introduction into the culture without feeling like you got to do this on mm-hmm. your own. After the first three months of having to study the language and you have to be proficient as a health volunteer because no one in the village speaks English. Right. So you have to kind of go and do community outreach and working with the health center and trying to address some of the health disparities there in the village. So after the first three months in testing, you had to place at an intermediate mid-level of language mm. within the first three months. And then they ship you off to your village <laughs> and they drop your bags off and you get to your house and you're like, good luck. <laughs> and, and, and that's like, <laughs> that was like my introduction to like living abroad and being a being terrified and like not afraid to leave my house because I didn't know the language that well and I didn't know anyone and that awkward uncomfortable walk to the health center for the first Monday 
and you're meeting people who don't know you and they have all these ideas about what an American is and you're trying to figure them out and mm-hmm. you look alike. But as soon as I open my mouth, they realize I'm different. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was it was it, it was dealing with all of those things that I think I think pulls, you know, it, it, it gets you over that romanticized version. Like, wow, I'm here very quickly when it's like, OK, I actually have to do work and I'm not going back in a month from now. I'm here for two years. So every month is like, okay, one month down, you know, 23 left to go kind of thing, you know? So it's, yeah. And, and, and I mean, you, you brought us something that I, it's always an interesting conversation. I think particularly having with, with African-Americans who go onto the continent is that, do you, did you ever get a sense? This is either if you can answer this question, but do you ever get a sense that, before you said anything, people assumed you were part of the local population or did you feel like in the communities you were in, they could tell immediately, maybe by mannerisms or, you know, non-verbally, you were not local? I'll let you go, Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were definitely times I would try to get away with it, especially like you going to the market and you don't like... Yeah, of course. You, you don't want to... Yeah, exactly. You, know, you want to haggle, right? You want to get that, yeah, that lower uh, rate. Haggling yeah. Is, yeah, haggling, as soon as I open my mouth, it's over. But it's just like, <laughs> if you know that you're going to get targeted for like, cause, oh, she's not from here. She's going to buy. So like, you know, the extra sort of, you want to avoid that, then I'm maybe I have to keep my mouth shut, try to... And it's just like um, a lot of times if people aren't really paying attention, yeah, I could kind of like blend it. And I liked that too. It's just like, ooh, like the otherness isn't there. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, you know, sometimes people would kind of like look and like, no. <laughs> um, like trying to go into like the, the tourism sites, the tourist sites, and they have like different rates for like local or if you're like a visitor or whatever. I'm like, I want to pay less. And they're like, no, <laughs> those folks know they're like mm-hmm. African-American. That's the price you're going to pay. So, but yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Like, it's funny. So in my house in Rwanda, we used to always get these like little geckos. Of course. Yes. I know. That's on the wall. <laughs> right. And it's funny because they, they crawl on the wall and sometimes they act like they're invisible, but you can see them. Right. <laughs> so it's like, it, it like stops. You're like, okay, I hope they don't see me. And I felt like that gecko. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like I hope, they can't see me. I, I hope they don't see me. Like they, they don't know I'm from Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> so, so that's that's kind of like how I saw it. And um, what gave me away was my book bag, man. Like Americans don't go anywhere without a book bag on their back. And me and my North Face walking around the village, and like, yeah, he's definitely not from here. And so yeah, it's it's tough. And then you open your mouth, and it's like, whoa, like. You speak like the white man. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Like, I speak like myself. Like, just, I'm articulate, but, you know, I speak like the white man, you know? Like, yeah. so, so, yeah. I was going to ask that question. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, we keep interrupting each other, but I was going to yeah, say, sorry. did anyone ever, because I've had this experience, I've experienced all the time traveling. Are people ever surprised that you're American? Like, even if they know you're not from there, do they, are they ever like, wait a minute? Because I, I I feel like that's kind of a little bit of where you were going with that. But have you ever been mistaken for, we know you're not from here, but I didn't think you were American. Yeah, all the time. Um, and I think Ghana is slightly different from Rwanda in the sense that you they have a, a higher percentage of black Americans that go there. Yeah. Yeah. Rwanda is, it's not the case. You get a yeah. lot of expats from different countries, but not necessarily America. So 
and it was for the for people in my village. It was the first time they met Black American, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Hmm, like <laughs> where where are you from? Like somebody in your family must be from Rwanda." And I'm like, no, "I don't think so." I mean, like, my parents. I mean, they could be right, <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah, like I don't, I don't, I don't have that story. But I, I, I could trace Brooklyn. I could trace Guyana. That's the closest. Ancestry.com would let me go. <laughs> you know, so and just like that constant of challenging of identity mm-hmm. that was really tough for me because mm-hmm. I, I didn't get that in Ghana, but in Rwanda, when you're living in the village, it's like, like you're not a real American, like, like. Like, <laughs> it's like, you're, like, I don't know, like, who am I? So it's funny to like working with a like a national organization, international organization that represents the United States, an American organization, Peace Corps, to then go there and have my Americanist challenged. <laughs> so it's that tension of like, OK, like, who am I? Like, what does it even mean to be an American now? I'm confused. Right. I'm, more, I'm more confused than anything now. You know? <laughs> yeah, I. I just remember um, like my people assuming like they oh you know we have a an American coming and stay with us when they knew that I was coming there um, for the first time it was just like oh okay they were expecting a white person because um, their idea of you know an American was a white person so when I came it was just like what what oh okay and I would hear have to hear my host mom explaining to other people because they were come and they'd be all confused and she'd have to say black American. Black American, <laughs> and they're just like, oh. <laughs> I mean, again, like, to Laura's point, it's like there's a lot more, you know, um, Americans and stuff there now, Black Americans. But in 2010, it was just like, what? I thought you said a white lady was coming. Like, no, <laughs> I, well, and you know, I wonder. Th- these are the things that I, I think about when I travel. I wonder if number one. People, first of all, people know they're Black Americans. You know how we know Beyonce and Obama. Like yeah, yeah. no, so no, for, like no joke, right? Michael Jackson, like there, there's, there's some stellar, like you know, pinnacle of Black Americanness that people know. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting is that, and I'm, I'm even wondering if colorism plays into it. Like the darker you are, do they mm-hmm. even assume you're Amer- like? It, is this the same question if you were a lighter skinned Black person? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. who could? Because pe- these are. Because I wonder to myself, you could see Beyonce and know she's American. Why would it be such a jump to see, you know, just a regular schmegular black woman from Massachusetts and not associate that with being American? But I know that one of the biggest issues, at least I face, is that people just assume Americans are often white. And so when they see us traveling, they're very like, you know, because I always get the question, people are like, you're American. Okay, but how did you... How did you get? How did you get that citizenship? <laughs> and I, I, I've been asked that question more times, and I'm willing to admit. And I'm like, I was born in D.C. in this hospital called Howard, and <laughs> it was, you know, it was given to me. And and they're like, but but you didn't have to buy it, and you didn't have to pay for it. And I said. No, I was born there, but like, how did you get there? And I'm like, well, my parents came in the seventies and all this other stuff. But, but I, I, it's just an interesting thing. I think about even to this day that people still don't associate blackness with Americanness, mm-hmm. with as much with as much black culture 
parts of it anyway, that is consumed internationally. It is it is the question I will probably go to my grave with still going, you still don't think that black people, <laughs> like you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like just like we're sold, you know, a particular image of what Africa is and what it means, like they're sold the same thing. So it's like, if we're not coming over there looking like, you know, what pop black culture looks like, then that's that's it. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the mm-hmm. viewpoint of perspective is pretty narrow on both sides. Definitely. And it's fascinating you say you said that, Amanda, because there were people in my village who thought Beyonce was white and Chris <laughs> Brown was white because the images that you see in the barbershop, they lighten up their complexion. Oh, no. Oh, so no. it's not like, like Akon was looking like a light skinned brother. I was like, Akon is not a light skinned brother. <laughs> you know? And a- first of all, Akon dark. You like, like it's not, it's, he not, he not dark, he dark for real. But the images that they that. show, they, they, you know, they, they lighten up the complexion and they kind of make you feel ashamed of being dark. And that's why they, they sell, they put so much of like the skin lightening creams. Like I had to bring my own lotions because I'm like, I don't want to like... <laughs> Buy a local lotion and wake up and looking like like salmon Sosa, you know, yeah. You know, I'll be hella mad. You know, <laughs> yo. Every now and then, because I'm petty, I'll start tweeting at Johnson and Johnson. I'm like, oh yeah, y'all got this diversity campaign in the U.S., but let's talk about what you sell in Africa and Asia and all your lightning creams. I know what y'all do mm-hmm. because you're right, like. We still sell the, I mean, colorism is, that's honestly, that's a big issue on the continent that probably a lot of people may not be as aware of, but this idea that to think that we're seeing what we would consider black icons be lightened and it's like, but why do they have to be like, light, like lightened? Mm -hmm. Why can't you just appreciate them for who they are, what they look like, you know? And, and I, and it, it concerns me too, that companies take advantage of that. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like why would you sell lightning cream? It's a billion dollar business. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why I'm always tweeting at them going, I may be one person. This is my revolution and the hill I'm going to die on. Y'all need to stop selling that crap. But it's really sad though, because it's like, yeah, it's a billion dollar business based on self-hate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's pushing this European form of beauty that they sell everywhere. And we're, we're forced to consume it until we hate ourselves. And then we, invest in changing who we are to to look like them when we can't you know it's it's so mentally warped that yeah a lot of work to do well i'm i was gonna say and i think that's the story of colonialism mm-hmm. right i mean and and you you were in rwanda and obviously rwanda had that tragic history with the genocide and a good part of it was the historical narrative is pitting tribes against each other. Mm-hmm. And part of it was physical characteristics. It wasn't the only thing. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the Belgians and the French who were in that country, that's that's what they said. You know what I said? Well, you know, this tribe over here and that tribe over here. And, and, it's, and it's been done over the world over. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we still keep there. Folks are making money, but we're still perpetuating the same supremist ideology and the same imperialism amongst ourselves that's dividing us not only within you know from country to country as black people but then black people within those countries mm-hmm. you know because there's there is no rational reason i mean as dark as i am there's no rational reason for me to get lighter outside of i'm in my house and it's winter like <laughs> do you really want to see me looking kind of yellow no <laughs> like i don't i don't you know but 
this idea that we still perpetuate you could have a better life. You can have more this, more that. I mean, what's, how is that different from sl- the story of slavery here, right? Mm-hmm. And as we know, the people who are in the homes and the people who are in the fields. Like, right. yeah, I mean, that's that's one of those things where, not to derail everything, but that's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I, I ain't getting off of this hill because it, har- it harms all of us, mm-hmm. to be honest. So, well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk a lot about the organization that y'all run because I love what y'all do and y'all need to get that money so you could do more of it. So Thanks. give us a moment. We'll be back. If you're listening to the Global Chatter, there's a good chance you like stories about expat life, identity, and more, which is why I'm going to recommend you check out Flourish in the Foreign by Christine Job. Her podcast elevates and affirms the stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, and it explores expat living as a pathway to wellness. Flourish in the Foreign is available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and we're back. And so obviously you guys are the founders of Leaders of the Free World. And so I know that there are a number of people who, if they didn't have a chance to read the article we wrote a couple of years ago in The Black Expat, I would love for you, Ruby, to just give, or at least start off telling us how did this organization get founded and why did it start? Sure, it's like so expensive. Um, so I told you about when I first went to Ghana and just sort of all those like, you know, realizations, liberated mindset, like I could not be the same person I was before Ghana, even if I tried. I did try. Didn't work. Um, and so it led to me doing all, you know, just really showing up in my own life in a big way, making decisions I never thought I could make before. Um, Ghana changed everything. And so when I thought about, you know, who else this could benefit, just like the fact that when I went over there, you know, again, 2010, I didn't see a whole lot of other black Americans at first. And um, and knowing that I was working at a school where students were leaving all the time, this was a normal thing that people left all the time. There were study abroad programs and everything like that. But when it came to thinking about, um, you know, students of color, particularly young men of color, I was thinking about the, the guys in my family at the time. And it was just like, man, if you saw what I saw, if you saw yourself the way you know, I see you or or had that opportunity to see yourself in this whole new way, I know it would change the game for you. Like, and that's what pretty much what it was about. It was just like, you know, at the time thinking about it as a social and thinking about this idea as like a social intervention tool or just like making that opportunity this, because I feel like um, young white kids, when they decide they want to, you know, travel or, you know, backpacks across Europe, like that's acceptable. It it happens. but these life-changing experiences for us aren't necessarily, they weren't put out there like that for us and uh, made accessible either financially or otherwise. And so the idea around leaders of the free world came about because it was like doing this for um, making these opportunities available for young black men, but really leaning into that liberated mindset aspect of it. So the the free world, the um, being about psychological liberation, being about this sort of like I didn't know I, you know, I didn't know who I was or I didn't realize I had the capacity that I had until I had this experience of going beyond my own mental mm-hmm. and physical boundaries. Um, so that was the, the thing behind it. And um, in 2014, I just kind of like started from just writing it down, <laughs> like this is what I want to do and just pushing it out there and trying to figure it out. And um, in 2016, I had gotten some um 
advice around like, hey, you should share um, travel stories. And um, so I was like, because I, you know, had never done it before, but I'm saying I'm talking about like, this is great and this program is going to be great and you should invest in us and building this this vision. But we had never launched a single trip. So um, I decided to or I started gathering stories, first time travel stories from black men Mm -hmm. talking about that experience and how it changed uh, their Mm -hmm. lives. Because if you look at there's the narratives of like, you know, Frederick Douglass and all the way up to like Ta-Nehisi Coates, Mm -hmm. these black men centuries apart. Right, hundreds of years apart, um, mm-hmm. you know, and talking about their first experience stepping outside of the U.S. And, and even with all that time, you see that same narrative. I saw myself differently. My, my mind expanded. You know, I could I, I, I changed as a person, you know. And so I was collecting stories from black men talking about how it changed them. And someone in my network referred me to LeVar and they mm-hmm. tagged. I put it on the put in a Facebook post and they tagged him. And um, he shared his story on um, the Leaders of the Free World um, website. And, um, you know, it just kind of exploded from there. I'm like, who is this guy? All of a sudden, all these people are like coming and seeing and liking. And I'm like, who's this this person? (laughs) Um, And so then uh, I'm trying to plan the first uh, pilot trip in 2016. And he's still in Rwanda. And um, we started, it, it just so happened, I'm working at his alma mater. So I had started working at Clark University and I was like, yo, you went to Clark? And he's like, yeah, that's my school. And so it was just like crazy. It was just happenstance. And um, so after he, he shared his story and he was just like, well, I'd like to stay involved. Um, you know, I want to learn more about this. When are you going to Ghana? And I'm just like, um, July 23rd, 2016. He's like, my service in, on July 23rd. Homeboy bought his ticket. Like before I bought the rest of the tickets. And I was like, oh, Okay, I guess this is happening. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, again, this was our first. We hadn't really started doing anything. So he and I, you know, over Messenger start like, okay, this is what's happening. This is like the curriculum I'm trying to build. And he's like, oh, I'm, I've actually been doing leadership development work with a lot of the young men and women in the village and stuff like that in different programs. And I was like, oh, you want to want to take that on? This one dude. And so he like, you know, came up with this whole curriculum around um, uh, the, the alchemist. And was talking to the students, you know, here in the States. And so we're going back and forth, money starting to come in. And I'm like, he's the person I'm sharing this stuff with. Like, um, hey, we just got another donation. This is like happening. These students are driving me crazy. Like, and also yeah. this natural sort of like, you know, um, partnership started kind of forming. Uh, but it was like, okay, all right, but we're doing this. And um, so we we book everything. And then the first time, so LeVar was flying in from Rwanda we were flying in from the States. We basically landed in the airport, you know, within 30 minutes of each other. And um, you want to take it from there, LeVar? Yeah, yeah, no. So before I even get to the airport scene, like backtrack a little bit. When I got tagged in Ruby's post, I was at a retreat in Rwanda. This was February, 2016. Remember it vividly because I couldn't sleep that night. and. I had a vision of starting an international leadership organization mm-hmm. for black men to travel back to the continent, but have a transformational experience. And I'm like, when I leave Peace Corps, like I have to start an organization. I don't know how. I don't, I don't, I don't know who's going to be a part of it, but I knew <laughs> that there was no way I was going to end this experience and go back to just working a play nine to five job kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I have to create something out of this. So it's like when I had that vision, I was tagged in Ruby's post around the same time. 
Mm. So I'm like, oh, let me check her website. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Like she's doing similar work to what I, I had in my vision in terms of working with young black men, travel, the leadership component. So I just reached out to her. I was going to go to her website and like, like do that whole like email contact thing. I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, but she messaged me <laughs> on Facebook. So I'm going to respond to her on Facebook. And that's when I found out that like she was going to Ghana the same time I was going. And I had already planned on going to Ghana a year before that because one of my good friends from community college had ran for parliament. Hmm. Um, so he was kind of like a big wig down there. So I'm like, I'm going to come spend two weeks with you before I go back to the U.S. And now like this leaders of the free world connection came in. Um, so literally use my Peace Corps stipend to buy my slave ticket. She never lets me forget it. <laughs> <laughs> My little, my little pennies I put together. I'm like, listen. I, I'm about so to we'd get like this. to thank the U.S. government for sponsoring. <laughs> Sponsored by the U.S. government. Y'all didn't know, but now you know. Just Mike. Uh, yeah. So I get, to, I get to Ghana, and you know, getting my bags and everything. And from February to July. There were several points in that timeline where we thought this wasn't going to happen from lack of funding for students not maybe dropping out or not showing up or committing to the things of the program. And I'm like, all right. And Ruby's like, all right, you're going to reach out to the guys. And I'm like, they don't even know me. Like some <laughs> random dude in Rwanda sending them emails about reading the alchemist. <laughs> They not gonna respect me. Student motivation is like the hardest. Like, yo, (laughs) as who also works in higher ed, uh, you need to have free pizza and a whole bunch of stuff. And if they're not in the same location, man. Yeah, I'm like, they not gonna respect me. Like, who am I? (laughs) Like, you you know, young black man. They're like, yo, who are you? You sizing you up? Like, they not gonna respect me. But I'm like, you know what? Let me try it anyway. I'm going to send these emails out to complete strangers I don't know and tell them what to read. Um, so I get to Ghana and I'm like, okay, this is like, this is another culture shock because I'm like, this is new to me. Right. And then I, they haven't, they hadn't landed yet. So I was there just sitting around getting my bags. And then I see Ruby walking around the corner and I look at her and I'm like, Holy crap! You're like a real person. Like I'm talking to you <laughs> on the screen. Right for this moment too, I'm acting. You know, I'm all like acting hard. I'm like, where my boy at? Where this boy at? I'm like, you know, where he at? Like looking around the airport, and then he like shows she up around saw, the corner. And I see her. She sees me, and she breaks down and starts crying in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the culmination of everything. Just like, oh my gosh! Like, holy crap! Like, <laughs> I done brought these people. We done made yeah. it. I didn't have enough money, but we here. It all work out. And yeah. if you don't, where the embassy at, that's always me. Yeah. It was, yeah. Like LeVar said, there were so many points in there where it was just like, we weren't even sure it was going to happen. Like, students were driving me crazy. And I'm like, okay, trying to get this money up. And it's like, oh my gosh. So at that moment, and I think also too, it's just like, you know, it's like a pretty lonely road. Yeah. So it's just like this person on the other side of the world, I'm sharing this vision with I've never met. We have nothing but this Facebook messenger connection. <laughs> and the fact that I'm working at his school, um, which by the way, it turned out I was just like, not legally bound, but officially, because he was a, he, I was working in a career development and he was an alum. So I was like, well, technically I'm supposed to be talking to you and helping you with like, you know, career stuff as <laughs> part of your, 
you're, <laughs> you're, <dirty. laughs> so, you're just taking in and, yeah. yeah so all day you know back and forth but anyway um but yeah in that moment it was just like you're the person who held me down you're the person who like i i never met but you were everything in helping to make this happen and so it was just it was overwhelming it was just, it was yeah it was a lot <laughs> that moment yeah, and, and they read the book, by the way. They read the book, <laughs> they read the book and showed up. All right, they showed up. <laughs> so let me, so let me ask you as a follow up. How? So, and this may be a two parter question since this was your first cohort, and we're obviously in twenty twenty one. But how did you go about determining who the participants were, and has that changed, and has your model changed since you guys had the initial vision? Yes. So, and we, the first participants, we wanted it to be geographically bound at first because we wanted them to, we knew we wanted there to be a pre-curriculum of them meeting up and and having conversations leading up to the trip. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted it to be like physically being able to meet, physically going places together. Um, But then there was this one kid out in California who applied to the project. There's always one kid out West where I'm like, why are you, y'all ain't got nothing out there. That's me. I'm like, like, through the East Coast or in the Midwest too. Sometimes a Midwest kid, and it's not like Chicago. It's like somewhere where you're like, I don't even know where that is. Right. Yeah. You're like, yeah, so my aunt told me about this program. I'm like, who's your aunt? Black people. Black people though. Black people. I've never met her either. And so, so we talked, and he, but he was just like, I recognize that this is supposed to be geographically bound, but I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to like work. And I was like, all right, you're going to be the pilot within the pilot, you know, because you know, we do want to work on thinking like, how might this grow to be like students didn't have to be uh, in the same place. So that's the part that did change after that first cohort. We recruit students from all different, um, you know, states, all different institutions. So we were actually on Zoom before the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. um, doing that work, which was really helpful. Um, we changed, it was first, it was just the students and the second cohort, we, we started doing mentors. So it's the students are going, but the students were assigned mentors outside of us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that definitely helped. And then also matching them up as accountability partners. So mm-hmm. just really putting in a lot of that um, social, uh, um, social and peer support for them in that. Um, I think uh, any other recruiting changes? Um, I mean, yeah, Savard. Yeah. Um, what as we've grown as an organization, recruitment has gotten slightly easier because it's it's hard to recruit. I, I, <laughs> I mean, because there's so many barriers that would prevent a black male from even applying to this organization that has nothing to do with the organization. It's like I'm not going to get in, or. I can't afford that or I can't afford to leave for that amount of time. So you, you see all of the the barriers that prevent black males from participating in study abroad in the first place mm-hmm. or recognizing the importance of it. Ruby and I spoke on a panel at New Jersey City University to a bunch of you know black male students and trying to elevate the importance of study abroad. And And I remember one student was like, so why should I study math in Egypt? Like, what's the point of that? Like, man, like, that's like the birthplace of all of that stuff. Right? <laughs> we created that. Like, you need to understand the, the, how epic that is to have an experience. But they couldn't make the, the mental connection. Um, so it's like we have to do a lot of groundwork and empowering students to take advantage of those experiences. And um, so do partnerships with 
kind of other institutions, we've been able to kind of create this really neat pipeline where schools are kind of funneling their students into our program and saying, hey, we have 10 students and we think that they'll be great. Hey, we're going we're gonna to sponsor them as well and we're going to work together. So I think as we've grown as an organization, the pipeline in terms of recruitment has evolved mm-hmm. where we're now able to reach more students and we continue to grow in that regard. You know, this is a slight plug for an episode we did before, but it ties real nicely to what you guys said. Um, So Corey Saunders, who I I may have mentioned earlier to you, Ruby, she's in she's in study abroad. Um, Diversity is a big focus of what her portfolio. And we talked at length about the challenges there are for black and brown students Mm -hmm. um, and the obstacles Mm -hmm. and the barriers and, and both challenging what they internally tell themselves mm-hmm. and then also what communally or community wide they may be told to themselves. Yeah. And, and the data always holds whenever I, I tend to do research on study abroad is that particularly black and brown students, the thing that really gets them is when they talk to people who look like them who've done it Yep. and black and brown faculty who've done it mm. because it's like, okay, my peers done it. So I trust you cause you're my girl or you're my boy. Right. Yeah. And then faculty, because it's like, you know, there's this, uh, there's this kinship that we have, let's be honest. Like there's a kinship that we often have mm-hmm. with faculty that looks like us. And it's like, okay, you're a person of an authority that I trust. Also, I can send my mama to who may yes. not want to send me to, <laughs> but you can say with your doctorate or whatever you got. Cause God knows I have talked to more mamas more parents <laughs> if you if you even like study abroad i don't even work in study abroad but like adjacent like i'm so far from study abroad and Corey would say the same thing we have talked to more parents than probably even kids because they're like i really want to go though but my mama's scared my mom wants to talk to you. <laughs> right, that's, that's what they say. But they don't even tell you why mom wants to talk to you. They're like, you know, mama wants to talk to you. And so, so let me ask this because you guys have mentor, mentioned the mentorship piece. Where do you recruit your mentors? Is that something you're always looking for? Like, how do they become a part of the story? You can, can take it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's fascinating. So. What about what of our board members? He's a mentor. Well, several board members, but this particular board member was my mentor in community college. He was my academic advisor. And when I was when we were like looking for board members, I'm like, Ruby, like, we have to include this guy because like he <laughs> has been a part of my journey. Like I know he understands the experiences. Shout of out students. to Benzilla. Stuart. Yeah. Benzilla. <laughs> <laughs> um and I'm like, he has to be a part of it. And he was like, yo, I would love to mentor. I also want to say this particular individual had studied abroad for almost a year in Japan. Okay. So got it, got it. Right, right, <laughs> right. He, he more than got it. You know, he <laughs> understands the ins and outs of academic advising, but can connect really well. So we, we look for that in, in a mentor in terms of like, we, we just don't want to feel like this kind of like, stoic relationship or formal relationship, but we want to have like a family relationship that you can come to me anytime when something is wrong. We can have conversations about life, school, mental health, you know, relation, whatever, whatever theme of that you're going through in your life, we can, we can talk about that. And of course the professional connection piece of internships and helping to expose them to other professionals. So 
as we look for mentors, we're, we're looking for those those key things. And of course, they've traveled, mm-hmm. you know, they have experiences, but but really being personable and like kind of fitting, like can understand the vision of mm-hmm. of LFW. And one requirement that we had in the past was that if you're going to mentor, you got to go on a trip with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like you just can't like be mentoring me up to the gate or terminal six and like I, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean I, I mean i'm that person because i'm i'm raggedy but yes you should you should accompany them at least on one trip so you know what you're talking about totally understand that <laughs> yeah and then even the mentors are transformed mm-hmm. because the experience becomes something that they they didn't know that they needed and it's like, whoa, like, you know, it was powerful mentoring, but like this experience is like, I'm being mentored at the same time. Um, and they come back equally as transformed and they want to go back again and again and again, because it's, it's such a powerful experience. And that's why we always say LFW is more than just a trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an experience um, that everyone in the process who's a part of it um, is transformed at the end. So is there the intention, and I, I know that let's control for the fact that 2020 was in fact a dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> is there an intention that when a when someone participates in this program, that there is a trip that they will ultimately go on? Is that is that the plan for every student who is accepted and stays in the program? Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so yeah, how- and obviously we'll be doing some pivoting and additional components as like our world has changed a little bit, but that is definitely a piece of it. Mm-hmm. And so how, how, so at what point does a student come in? Cause one of the things I, I noticed and, and, and it's interesting cause you guys have talked about expansion and one of the things that actually made me really excited seeing you guys kind of change over the years was there almost seemed like an intentionality with community college students in particular. And I love that because if once again, if you know anything about like study abroad data, international education, that population gets left out, which also is highly represented by a lot of quote unquote, non-traditional first gen minority all of the populations that that often are not seen on on a trip. So how long does a student, like, where does the starting process? Are they with you a year? Are they with you two years? How does it manifest? Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't matter. So when we started, um, so it was like a full year, right? You join us in January. We do a program up into the summer. We go on the trip. You come back. We continue to meet uh, to the end of the year. Um, we realized on all sides that that's kind of a long That's a time. long year. It's <laughs> <laughs> a real long year. <laughs> I mean, but it's various factors. And so we um, shortened it to, um, you know, being a couple months. So it was just like a 10-week program leading up to the trip and then um, 10 weeks, at, I think eight weeks after. But even before the 10 weeks of curriculum, it was just like, okay, orientation, getting in there. So I would say like... Um, three and a half months or so before and then there's the two weeks in Ghana and then afterwards like you know two or three months um you know part of the program and you know even moving forward we're even saying like you know could we bring it even more so it's just like I would say that right now um the program in its entirety is probably closer to like eight to nine months um yeah but and and how and um 
So eight, nine months. So how do, I guess for a, stu- for a student, how do they typically fund this? Um, so we work, we partner with schools. So we tell students, you know, some students will come to us individually um, and we will tell them that like, okay, your portion of what you would need to raise and we'll work with you and like that is like a thousand dollars. Don't worry about it if you don't have that in your pocket. Just know that you'll work with us. This is what you'll need to raise. If it's an institution, that amount could vary. So that could be your school is paying totally for that or your school is paying for some of that and there's still an expectation that you raise, you know, 500, 1,000. We put it across the board that everybody helps, you know, everybody yeah. fundraises. Not yeah. necessarily just for the money, but when Leaders of the Free World first started, the, the idea and everything like that, we were thinking that we're going to make these opportunities 100% free. Like everything. Like, yeah, yeah, I love that face. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you also know where this is going. Because uh, I know people. Because <laughs> okay. I know people. <laughs> yes. So it was the idea that this would be 100% free. You know, from your, your passport, your visa, your shots, we're going to do it all because like the money is the barrier. And which, again, you've, you've done mm-hmm. some interviews and everything like money is one barrier. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, we would do that. And it was just it was problematic on a number of levels, the ones that you can already grasp. But it's just like it's even problematic for our, our mission. So when you're sort of just like kind of like giving free, it's like you're assuming that because you come from nothing and you have nothing and you can contribute nothing. And so it's like, that's a little you know problematic. Yeah. And then also people act differently, you know, when they have skin in the Brand game. New. <laughs> you put in 0.99 cents. Let me tell you, you want to act as raggedy as somebody that put in $1.5 million, but you like, put my money in it. I'm like, it is. However. Yeah. Right. And so it was just like, it was training our students how to like, you know, advocate for themselves, how to invest in themselves, you know, how to, ask people to support them and doing how that, to that show up because you put your money in it like yeah. can we talk about this song <laughs> so yeah. and also it's just like oh you know we're paying for like shots and everything like that oh there's an appointment you know that that's gonna cost a hundred dollars oh i missed that appointment oh that's now it's gonna cost four hundred dollars um <laughs> kind of feel like you wouldn't have missed that if like, <laughs> right right um so like stuff like that so um I got away from the original sort no. of like um, money. You got skin in the game. You act right. Yeah, so that's <laughs> I think a component. So we do that with yeah. So they and part of like recruiting and them in the and the program like you actually like the funding. So it's just like everybody fundraises. Everybody has some portion. Even if your school is one hundred percent funding you, you're still going to participate in that aspect of it with the organization. Um, but that's how we find students, and we're moving more into sort of like really building those relationships with the institutions versus just the one-on-ones. Um, not to exclude those one-on-one students, but it's just a stronger framework when you have their home institutions involved in supporting them before and after the trip. I guess I'm feeling I feel, I'm feeling compelled to share the two the two day campaign because it kind of <laughs> oh, it kind of came out of dollars. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> was it? I think it was 2017, was it 2017? 2017. It was 2017 because he was getting on a plane. 2017, <laughs> we're getting on a plane and we had had this fundraising campaign and nobody was giving no money to it. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, this is awful. You know, um, we can have a separate episode on trying to build stuff from the ground up with no money because I feel like a lot man. of people too see, they see stuff and be like, y'all are so successful. What you don't know yeah, is how okay. like there were zero dollars for like most of it. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, we're like so, commiserating. I'm going to let you tell it, but yeah, you, you <laughs> tell it. <laughs> yeah. 
no, no one was giving any money to it. And then Ruby posts like getting ready to go to Ghana tomorrow, like three thousand likes, right? And I'm like, look at this, like people just like nonsense, like so. So you like, like so you, you like the idea home. of Ghana, but you don't like the process of paying for it, right? right? Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. So the idea came up like, so what if we did like a two day campaign, like everyone just give a dollar? Well, because you were like, what if we could turn those likes into dollars? What yeah. if we could make giving as fun as liking? And she was like, oh, I like that. So anytime we like picking the brain behind the scenes and we're brainstorming, it's like, all right. I'm like, so we need like a countdown timer. And she's like, all right, I'm on that. And we like put it, put this whole campaign together in like, like an hour. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, we had an hour, but ran for like three days, I think. And we raised over $2,500. In in two in days, two days. And, I, and it was just the excitement <laughs> of of people able to give because when people hear fundraising, like oh, I gotta give, but if you hear a dollar, it's like man, I, can, <laughs> I, I got a dollar. It. <laughs> it was two, but it was we did this campaign <laughs> called Two Days Two Dollars, mm-hmm. um, and just asking everybody if they could just donate two dollars, and people were like, two, I got five. I'm like, you a superstar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, thank you for letting us know. Would you like to donate that as well? Yeah. 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 And they would. And they would. And they, they made us really bold about asking. And they made our our, our, our network that wanted to support us bold about asking their friends and family. I do have some family members I don't, I don't talk to now because they couldn't get $2. But, you know. Oh, me, me too. Me too. But, and, and friends. <laughs> and friends. I lost some friends over that campaign. So but we just... I was gonna say, yeah. so I mean, you're doing this. How many how many students do you guys typically take on a on a trip? Uh, this year we're slated to take twelve students, and so growing, we're probably the next cohort. I mean, we're gonna we're yeah. a year behind in terms of so now it's like the what we would have taken now is just like that amounts building. So um, I think the ne- the so fifteen to twenty is about the number we're taking, and I think going forward we're probably going to be at like twenty to twenty five. Or twenty-four mm-hmm. even numbers, um, but there's a lot of things in work. There's a lot of things in play that are going to affect those numbers. Not necessarily downward, but sort of like upward. Like, oh, we're actually possibly working with that place, and they're going to bring their students, or we're working with that school, and they want to bring their students. Like, yes, like, like thirty students, maybe. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah. And how yeah. and how long are you guys? So you've gone to Ghana. How long do you guys typically stay on a trip? Is it a two week? Is it a seven day? What's, what's your yep. like? It's two weeks and we visit three mm-hmm. parts of the country. So we do Accra, everybody knows Accra. We go yeah. to Kumasi, Kumasi and then we do, um, Cape Coast. Cape Coast. Cape Coast. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I guess my, my question now, because y'all, y'all have so eloquently kind of shared the mission and what you're doing and whatnot is where, where do you see you guys going? Like, where do you see your needs coming as you, as you move forward in this vision? Yeah, I'll start. Really yep. I was, I, I like, you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the pandemic has changed a lot about what we right. do, <laughs> you know, because as institutions cringe, when you hit, when you say the word travel or international, anything, it's like, yeah, like, Right now is not the best time to raise money for travel, right? right. Because it's like people like you want to travel during a pandemic, like it's right. not cool. Um, so we had to like rethink and re-strategize, and um, now we are slightly pivoting. We st- like we're still doing the work that we do, but now we're focusing on diversity and inclusion um, in terms of getting more of our students into, into international internships. 
thinking about how mm-hmm. we can kind of diversify the and pipelines global careers. Of, yeah. and global careers and thinking about how do we position you to be successful in these different arenas and begin to change who sits in the, at these tables mm-hmm. um, and working with partners and institutions to to, sh- to spread that, that vision and, and, and getting them on board. And, you know, s- schools already have challenges with mm-hmm. getting their, their black male students to um, to study abroad. But then we think about internship opportunities who, who take advantage of those opportunities as well and really wanting to diversify that as well. So right. we're currently in the process of putting together a virtual global summit, summit um, this summer. Um, so instead of going to Ghana, um, we'll be kind of putting together this two day summit where we're bringing together leaders from all over the world in different industries, um, different uni- universities across the country who want to have their students be a part of this experience and really kind of breaking down the framework of like, what does it take? What are the skill sets to thrive in these industries? Um, how do you, how do you get access into these industries? How do you begin to cultivate your, your brand as a leader? How do you cultivate your network? Um, and having black and brown folks lead these sessions so yep. they can have the examples, um, bringing international partners um, a part of the conversation so they can have that cross-cultural global exchange as well. And really it'd be this like, dope experience with like our people who are doing amazing work all over the world but also providing a blueprint on how to access that right so it's just like if you're going to be in like these senior leadership positions at like a multinational organization or playing at that global level like there's you know those those uh those pathways and things like that aren't necessarily that visible so mm-hmm. it's like if you have a student who's like i want to be an ambassador one day i want to you know i want to mm-hmm. go to peace corps like mm-hmm. what is the sort of the track to get into that how do you get a fulbright how do you you know, go into that? How do you um, get a, a social innovation grant that's like, you know, for a global impact program or something like that? So it's like, how can we give our students and also the students and the countries that we're working with access to those opportunities to hear mm-hmm. from folks who are in those roles talking about this is, you know, how I got there. This is what you want to do now to play at that international level. Mm. You know, you're speaking my love language. (laughs) That's that's, that's my love language. I mean, that's why the black expat exists, right? It's visibility. We don't always Mm -hmm. see ourselves, right? We, we all, the three of us have very different international stories, but there is some intersection, but I, I I would probably could, uh, I could probably determine that most of us didn't see people who look like us who are doing the things that maybe we aspire to or thought that we could even do. And so I think that the work that you guys are doing is is completely amazing. And so more importantly, and, and I'm going to have this in the show notes, where are people going to be able to find y'all? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, leadersofthefreeworld.org. Um, we also are on Facebook, Leaders of the Free World. We're on uh, Instagram, LFW, LFW. leader. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't remember my stuff either. <laughs> Twitter. Twitter. LinkedIn. Twitter. Twitter. Oh, yeah. Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, LFW leader on Twitter and, you know, leaders of the free world. Um, but follow us. I mean, we're the both of us are pretty active on mm-hmm. all the socials. Um, so, yeah. I mean, we're definitely looking for folks who want to be mentors, looking for folks who who want to sponsor that upcoming summit um, because it is going to be a pretty, you know, big and expansive thing, both with the schools and like with our the international partners. So before, before I let people go, I tend to do these three things called lightning round questions. And so it's, <laughs> the good news is 
they're painless. The bad news is I'm formulating them as we're sitting here because I forgot. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, I got questions for them. So um, whatever comes off the top of your head, all right? This is for both y'all. Okay. First question. Obviously, y'all have gone to Ghana. What would be the next dream country for y'all to take students to? Rwanda. <laughs> that was easy. Rwanda. Yeah? Keep it in Africa, different part? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, if folks are out there and they got connections, you know, maybe they can make it happen with you guys. Second question. Obviously, you guys have a noble mission and and you've seen a lot of students kind of that you've worked with. Who is this program not a good fit for? If you're just looking for a trip. Yeah. Say more. The LFW program is, like we said, is an experience that I think has components to the process that like if you just go on a trip without the pre process, it doesn't add to the transformational experience um, because we do a deep dive on identity, the mindset, um, successful habits, environments. So it's like, yeah, you can go on a trip. You don't need us to go on a trip. Just go on Mm -hmm. Expedia. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want the process, then. But if Expedia would like to sponsor (laughs) Leaders of the Free World. Look, I'm I'm always thinking. I'm like, look, I'm always thinking. Get you you your dollars. (laughs) All right. Third question. Oh, it's a good one, too. But I think I lost it. Nah, I'll come back to it. Um, Yeah. Third question. What is one thing that you think you your organization would love to have or needs assistance with as a nonprofit? Mm. What's a need? <laughs> You're both looking at each other. Right. I don't know Every if you time. already know or it's like you don't want to say because it could be either. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just like everything. Uh, the one thing we need help with or assistance with. Um, I mean, I think. You know, everybody could always use a little bit of, you know, operations assistance. But I think um, getting more, um, getting more um, folks who are available on the other side of the pipeline, I think for us is a big thing. So it's just like, we want to be able to like cultivate these leaders. We want to be able to let them know about all these opportunities that are available out there. Um, it'd be really great to also be able to identify, you know, those places that are raising their hands like, yeah, like us, you know, like we've got, a, you know, an a, a internship program or we've got an entry level sort of like program or or some sort. We've got funding for like so having um, partners at the the who are willing to be at that end of the pipeline or the other side of that pipeline is would be really great. Money is great, too. Money is always great. <laughs> always. Always. <laughs> Yeah, I would say definitely the institutional and corporate partnerships are huge because they allow us to expand our capacity. Like Ruby and I can only do so much. And the vision (laughs) that we have, we need help. We need we need a lot of alliances that could allow us to expand and focus it on in other areas of the organization. Ruby and LeVar, thank you for coming on the chatter. It's been hilarious. (laughs) 
might we might have to do a live event because you know i think there are people who'd be really interested in talking to y'all but thank you so much for coming on the podcast and and sharing both of y'all's personal stories and just what you're doing with leaders of the free world like i said amazing mission amazing work you know 2020 is gonna be you're gonna do it big pandemic or not i'm speaking it but you know thank you guys Global Chatter with the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is produced by Justin Williams. You can find the show wherever you get your podcast or follow us on our YouTube channel at The Black Expat Presents. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.